Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Malbehaved Racing Experience, Episode 5. Today is a Memorial Day special episode, and I want to start off today's episode with a quote. There are three great loyalties that have guided my life and everything in it, God, family, and country. While I am far from perfect in these respects, I have given my life to serve all three of these loyalties whenever and however I can. And right now, there is a need for my experience and skills to serve in our nation's long-lasting war in Afghanistan. And that is how Major Brent Taylor, the mayor of North Ogden, Utah, announced to his constituents and family on social media that he was deploying to Afghanistan in 2018. Major Taylor uh, also was the had been the mayor and a city council member of the Utah's community of North Ogden for many years, all the way back to 2013. Uh, originally being from Utah, this, uh, this story has a huge impact on me. Um, the selfless service, the citizen soldiers, and those who valiantly, courageously, and selflessly sacrifice themselves and their time and their family's time in order to serve the great country of the United States of America speaks volume to what an all-volunteer service, what an all-volunteer military what the truly selfless type of citizen soldiers we have serving in our United States military truly are. Major Taylor was a statesman, a husband, and a father of seven. He had kids that ranged from 11 months old to three years old that were left behind when he was killed by a, an apparent insider attack on November 2nd in 2018. I think that's the date. I don't have it directly in front of me. His body and his remains were returned to Utah and to his family on election day that year in 2018. He had sent out a quote or a post on social media saying, whether you be Republican or Democrat, and I'm paraphrasing, please understand why election day is so important to our country. It is this type of selfless service selfless sacrifice, the type of people like Major Brent Taylor, who lead our country, who are our country, and who define what military service is in the United States. It's tough today. Uh, I'm coming to you from Memorial Day. I spent the morning with uh, cadets from my Air Force Junior ROTC unit that I lead and teach, and we went to the Sacramento Memorial Lawn to provide a color guard service for the those that were there to mourn the loss of their loved ones who have served in the military, to celebrate and honor those who have lost their lives in military combat going back to the beginning of the United States of America. Looking at how many people have lost their lives in support and defense of this country, um, they're staggering numbers. Um, I'm using references from PBS.org, you know, wartime deaths in the United States military. 4,435 people died in the Revolutionary War to liberate our country from the oppressive government of Great Britain and England. And there have been wars throughout there. Um, War of 1812, 2,260. The Indian Wars, 1,000 people. Mexican War, 13,283. Now, this one is a scary one, the next war, is the Civil War. 4,498,332 Americans perished in the Civil War. 
that was the war that essentially ended slavery. Um, it's really hard to imagine brothers fighting brothers, cousins fighting cousins in face-to-face, hand-to-hand combat that was such the type in the Civil War. Or how many people laid down their lives in order to change something that was rooted in our nation's history and in the world's history to end slavery. That is probably the... That is, actually looking at it, that's the bloodiest war that we've ever fought in. The U.S. Civil War is the bloodiest war that the United States has ever participated in. That's the where most people have perished. And we celebrate them on both sides because both sides were fighting for something they believed in. And that's what we should always remember is though the people that were fighting on the Confederate side were now looked upon as we're trying to eradicate memories and eradicate memorials to them and and because they, they feel like it is a symbol of hate. What it really was was a symbol of something they identified with. And by eliminating those those artifacts, eliminating those monuments, eliminating those memories, we're destined to relive the type of memory that's there. So don't let the 498,000 and change U.S. military members on both sides that perished in that conflict, lives go in vain. Remember where we came from. We can't erase slavery. It's something that happened in our country. What we need to do is remember that there's so many that sacrificed to overthrow it, to turn to change the way it was. Uh, looking at World War One, which was supposed to be the war to end all wars, 116,516 U.S. service members were killed fighting to overthrow uh, oppressive leaders in Europe. The second bloodiest conflict in U.S. history was World War II. 405,399 U.S. soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines. Granted, they weren't really called airmen then. They were the U.S. Army Air Corps, but they were their pilots nonetheless were killed in the wars, both in the Pacific and European theater. This year, we'll celebrate the 75th anniversary of the D-Day invasion of the Normandy coast in France. I wish nothing other than I wish I could go there to celebrate that. Having visited Normandy and visited the Normandy coast when I was young, uh, when I was in high school, uh, it's really hard to... I didn't understand it then, and I really want to go back at some point in time in my life to especially during the the, uh, the celebration of D-Day and, and really reflect on that. That was the war that went over through, you know, the Nazi reign in Germany and the Japanese oppression of the Pacific. Really what it was, it was a war to try and end the genocide that was occurring against the Jewish uh, Jewish population in Europe um, at the hands of the Nazis. And it was, I mean, it was... A bloody, bloody war. Hundreds of thousands of men came back injured, um, came back with damage uh, that they called at the time, they called shell shock, which we later learned was actually just PTSD. It was just, it wasn't understood yet. The Korean War, the Forgotten War, um, 54,246 people perished um, from the U.S. The Korean War was was interesting because it was kind of overshadowed um by the Vietnam War, and it was in the wake of the World of World War II, and that's why it's called the Forgotten War. Um, surprisingly, that was the first opportunity that my family had the, to serve in the war. My uh, grandfather was actually drafted into the army in the Korean War, and I ended up uh, being able to get an exclusion because of um, 
he had a pregnant wife and uh, there was no way for her to support herself. And so somehow he had, he got an exclusion from the war and the draft. Then we get to the Vietnam war, 90,220 U S soldiers perished in the Vietnam war. Vietnam war is probably the, the war that really started to define PTSD as well as the fact that our service members were not really given the the welcome that they they deserved. There wasn't the the ticker tape parades like World War II. There wasn't the celebration and and, and everything else because this was our first foray into policing, uh, global policing, and trying to be a police force and help someone else. This wasn't us protecting our way of life. This was us trying to help somebody else. And there was a lot of politics, and and th- that war was ugly. And it's, it's a shame, you know, I, I look at, I look at World War II veterans and they're celebrated and they're, they're considered the greatest generation. Korean War veterans are, like I said, they're the, it's the forgotten war. Vietnam veterans were, were and are still many times not seen as, um, the, the greatest, they're not the greatest generation. They're not the Korean War veteran, you know, they're, they're who we are. They're our fathers. They're our grandfathers. You know, my my father in law was a, in the Marines in Vietnam, and uh, he suffers from PTSD. He's got a lot of the negative effects of Agent Orange, the chemical we were spraying in the jungles to try and thin out the undergrowth, so that we could battle with the guerrilla warfare. This was the first time where we were trying to fight guerrilla warfare from the other side. You know, guerrilla warfare was what won us the U.S. Civil or the U.S. War of Independence. But we were kind of on the opposite side here. We were trying to fight traditional, conventional war while combating against guerrilla war. And it's tough because it's tough to see these veterans from from the Vietnam War at any other way than heroes. And they did the best they could. And they did, you know, they were they were fighting a war that was politically unpopular. It was unpopular with U.S. people, and it. It's, it's tough because they volunteered or were drafted because we still had the draft in effect at that time to go and fight this war. And the 90,000 men that were, yeah, I'm sure men, women that were lost in that war are memorialized in the, the Vietnam Memorial in Washington, D.C. I had the pleasure of taking uh, my wife and, and son out there to see the Memorial Wall last summer. And while walking the, the Capitol Mall and seeing the, the different memorials, there's none that really speak to you so much or that spoke to me as much as the Vietnam Memorial. Just seeing so many names up on that wall, seeing so many people that are still there mourning their friends. You know, this is the generation that's, that's still alive. We're losing them faster and faster. There's, there's not a lot of World War II veterans left. We're, the numbers of the greatest generation of, from World War II is, are very, very slim. Um, they're in, they're well into their 90s or 100s if they're still around. But there are a lot more Vietnam veterans around us. But they're starting to age out as well. And they're starting to, the, the numbers of them are getting smaller as we go. But the ones that were there that were celebrating their friends, you know, the traditional at the, the Vietnam Wall, Vietnam Memorial Wall in Washington, D.C., is take a piece of paper and do a rubbing. You take a um, a a crayon or a, a, a pencil and you rub the name of your loved one or your friends or your fallen or your, your brothers in arms. And that's a way to re- remember it. And it, it was really, it was moving to, to see that memorial and really connect it to, you know, a, a family member to connect it to my father-in-law. You know, I, I haven't spent a lot of time with my father-in-law. He's uh, 
it's a challenging, it's challenging to establish a relationship with him. You know, he's leading Missouri. I'm we're in California. Um, he's not real receptive. It took us, you know, a couple of days to try and even convince him into meeting with us. And so it's tough because you see the toll that that war has taken on people. Then the Persian Gulf War, um, 1,565 U.S. service members were killed in the Persian Gulf War. So this is the the first time that we, we liberated Kuwait from Saddam Hussein and the Iraq uh, army. Um, I, did, I didn't realize that we had had, we had had so many casualties. And I assume that a lot of those casualties are Operation Northern Watch, Operation Southern Watch, and all the follow-up operations that were associated with the Persian Gulf War. But it really was staggering to me to see that you know 1,565 service members uh, were killed in that that theater in that combat theater. And now we get to we get to my wars. Um, we get to the global war on terror. This is Operation Enduring Freedom, Operation Iraqi Freedom. Um, all the the conflicts that have happened in Iraq, Afghanistan. Um, I think that that Africa falls under the global war on terrorism. There's some stuff that's happening in in um, the Philippines that fall under the global war on terrorism. But we're at six thousand eight hundred and fifty-two service members killed since the nine the nine eleven attacks. Now, if you really think about that, if you really look back, just even look back at the numbers of the Vietnam War, ninety thousand versus the six thousand eight hundred fifty-two killed in the global war on terror. That's a testament to say that our war fighting has gotten a lot better. Um, because the global war on terror is, is our longest sustained combat operation to date. We've been at war, um, for 18 years. And if you really look at the number of 6,852 people killed, it's, uh, it, it seems like a staggering number, but as compared to, you know, Vietnam war, which was, two thirds of the length at 90,000 or world war two, which was a quarter of the length at 405,000 and change killed. We've done a lot better at protecting ourselves and our troops, but any loss of life is, is one loss too many. And it's really hard for me, um, to think about those that we've lost in the global war on terrorism. Um, the one that really comes to the forefront of my mind is, uh, air force major Walter David gray or DG. Um, Major Gray was, uh, um, I knew him as Captain Gray. Um, I had worked with him and trained with him quite a bit. Um, he was stationed at Fort Carson, Colorado. He was, uh, he started as, uh, um, an enlisted TACP, Tactical Air Control Party. Remember, what's those are the guys that, uh, that embed with the Army and, and call in, uh, close air support. Um, he commissioned and became an air traffic officer, a, a 13 Mike, um, he was an air traffic airfield operations officer. And that's when I met him. I met him when I was stationed in the uh, CRG at a Travis Air Force Base. He was uh, in at McGuire CRG. And there was, we had a really small, small component of air traffic controllers within both CRGs, both coasts. And so we did a lot of training together. The first time that I really worked with, with DG is we, uh, he, he set up a landing zone safety officer course for us out at Fort Bragg. So we got out there and we, we really, you know, he, he took us through the TACP squadrons that he was the ASOS squadrons that he worked with while he was there. And we did this training together and he just really got to, got to, got to know him, got to, uh, really appreciate what he brought to the fight, his planning, his strategic, his strategic ability to plan and build exercises. And we worked a few exercises with him. I never got to deploy with him, just a lot of training, a lot of, 
um, planning a lot of theoretical concepts. We were trying to build a concept for air traffic control that was something that uh, the big Air Force uh, at A1, the the One Charlie One functional managers and the One Charlie Seven functional managers or career field managers of the Pentagon really didn't want us doing it. And so we were operating under what the four-star general at, at uh, AMC Air Mobility Command wanted us to do, but it was in it flew in the face of what the air traffic guys wanted us to do. So we were kind of caught in this, this uh, gray area, uh, pun intended. And he was really good at being able to bring his his knowledge from it, uh, his combat knowledge as a TACP and making sure that we were doing the right thing. Learned a ton about radio operations from him, about survey operations, about landing zone stuff. And it was just, it was really fun to plan and exercise and, and do different things with him. He uh, retrained from being an air traffic control officer to a, uh, basically it was an air operations officer, air support operations officer. Um, basically that was an officer version of, of the tactical air control party. He became the, he was actually the senior ranking um, officer TACP when he was killed on August 8th um, by a suicide bomber at a meeting that he was at during a deployment in Afghanistan. Um, he left behind a wife um, and children and a couple of grieving communities, both the army community at Fort Carson, Colorado, the air force community within the TACPs, the air traffic uh, community that had worked with him and everybody that he'd ever worked with and touched. He was an amazing uh, leader he was insightful. He was um, brave, driven, motivated. He was a good father. He was a good husband. And he was a good friend to many of us. And it was really the, the day that I learned that he had been killed um, was the day that I really, it really struck home for me how precious life is and how quickly it can go away, how quickly things can go wrong when you're in the profession of arms and his death really has shaped a lot of the way I, I, I think about things. Um, I mean, he wasn't a super close friend. He was a, he was a coworker. He was a, a mentor. Um, but you know, it was, it's, it's, it's hard to, uh, really get on. you know, I, I visited, I, I had been to, to, uh, Washington DC three or four different times. And I had always intentionally avoided Arlington cemetery where he's buried because I, I just wasn't ready. I wasn't ready to acknowledge that he was actually gone. Um, this last summer when I was there, um, my wife and I, uh, finally made the trip to Arlington and, uh, it was, it was really emotional. It was really, it was difficult. Um, I had Charlie with me, I had, had my service dog and we went and, uh, we took a private shuttle out to his gravesite, and they they showed us where the gravesite. Arlington does such a good job if you're going to visit and mourn um, a friend or a loved one. They you know they, their their survivor services are incredible. We went out and uh, we found his grave, and um, it was filthy. It was it was dirty, and so I spent some time cleaning it up, cleaning up his headstone, and then just sitting, just sitting with him and. Thinking about the good times, thinking about the bad times, thinking about my own mortality, thinking about um, everything. You know, I had a good cry. I, I, uh, it was, it was tough, um, and it, it became solid for me. It became solid that the DG wasn't there anymore, and it was, 
I don't know if I want to say the most, one of the most spiritual things that I've ever done, but it was definitely the most humbling. I had remembered that we are in the profession of arms and sometimes, you know, we, we all swore that oath. I swear to support and defend the constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic. And we write a blank check to the U.S. government for everything right up to the cost of our lives. And he paid the ultimate sacrifice. And today is a day that uh, I will remember DG and I will remember uh, Major Brent Taylor. And I will remember those that I've known, whether they be casual acquaintances, whether they be good friends, whether whoever they are that have given their lives in support of our country. Um, when I got off... When I got out of my truck today with the color guard at the Sacramento Memorial Lawn, we stepped out and immediately I was assaulted by the sound of bagpipes. For those of you that have ever served on a funeral detail or helped plan a military funeral or have lost someone, um, hearing taps played on the bagpipes is probably the most gut-wrenching experience that you'll ever have. It is extremely difficult to compose yourself when you hear that because you know that that signifies the end. You know that tap signifies the end. And there's just something something ominous, something eerie, something next level about hearing them on the bagpipes. It's probably the most... I don't... That, that instrument just... It, I love it. I want I want uh, taps played at my funeral um, on the bagpipes because it just truly is. It's, I don't know. It's it's really hard to express, but it is what the final rites should be, and that's how they should be played. Taps. I mean, taps on a bugle is amazing, but taps on the bagpipe is so much more intense. And as we were walking back from performing the color guard at uh, the memorial that was at 10 o'clock. You know, it's interesting because this is a civilian cemetery and they want to do everything right. But as we walked up, you know, they had a display of the U.S. flag and the service flags to include the POWMIA flag. And I immediately looked at the flags. I'm like, they're wrong. Um, they're doing the best they can. Civilians truly are doing the best they can, but the flags were in the wrong order. They had the wrong kind of flags on the flag staffs. And so we, we made some quick adjustments and, and put the flags in the correct order. And I talked to the director and the general manager and said, hey, you know, in the future, think about this and this and this. And these are the right type of flags. The other thing that I saw was their flag was at full staff. And so um, as I was walking around the, the memorial lawn waiting for our detail to start, I grabbed their maintenance guy that was there and said, hey, this flag's supposed to be at half staff until noon today. He's like, oh, yeah, yeah, we meant to do that. I was like, well, it's supposed to be at sunrise. So if you're in the industry of, you know, acknowledging life, you've got to do it right. And he's like, yes, I absolutely, I absolutely agree. So he, he fixed it and it was amazing. And, and they were so humble and they were so apologetic about, hey, we, we we're trying the best we can. And that's all that you can do. You try the best you can to remember those that have given and sacrificed you, you, you do the best you can to move on. You do the best you can to remember them. Don't forget them. Um, it's on days like today where I wear my POWMI bracelet for, um, I guess this one's a KIA bracelet for uh, DG. I remember the the missing from all those wars, from Vietnam, from Korea, from World War II, from World War One, all the way back. 
I just had the uh, opportunity to spend the night on the USS Hornet earlier this week. I took a, a trip uh, out there. I took 40 students, and we got to go spend the night on the USS Hornet. The USS Hornet from World War II, the one that picked up uh, the the Apollo 11 capsule after it landed on the moon. And one of the really cool things that we got to do is uh, at night, and we we stayed overnight, and it was uh, it was really neat. So we we slept in the berthing from the the different. Uh, we slept in junior rank enlisted berthing, which was, you know, I was trying to get put in chief's quarters because you know that's where I'm at. But yeah, whatever as a whole, we slept there. Um, one of the cool things they did is they, they take you up to the forecastle, which is the the inside portion of the ship where the anchor comes in, and they turn the lights off and they tell ghost stories. You know, being a warship, the USS Hornet, you know, people have died there. And you have to assume that uh, any place that somebody's uh, body expires, their soul may be trapped. And so they talk about and they tell the ghost stories. Um, and part of the ghost stories was they were talking about how they do their burials at sea during World War II. You know, modern day, if you're killed in action uh, just about anywhere, uh, we have the ability to return your body quickly and effectively back to your family so that you can have your, your proper rights here in the United States or wherever you're, you're living. But during World War II, they didn't have the ability. They didn't have the airlift. They didn't have the capability to bring you back. And so you were buried wherever you fell. If you were on an aircraft carrier out in the Pacific, you were uh, interred in in the deep, in the big blue. And they talked about that and they talked about how it was, you know, they would send your personal effects back to your family, but your body was interred in the deep. And that was really moving. I hadn't really even considered that um, because, you know, we have all the U.S. cemeteries overseas, which are hallowed ground. You know, the one that I visited was in Normandy back when I was 15. And you forget that with so many people, 405,000 killed in World War II, that there wasn't a way to send them all back. You know, you see the the news broadcast now where, you know, service member who were killed in Afghanistan, Iraq, or or wherever their bodies are um, packaged and shipped back home through the, the Dover Air Force Base Memorial Center, and then they're repatriated to your home of record or wherever you, you wish to be buried based upon your, your final request. And that wasn't the case. I mean, there's so many people who didn't have the opportunity to visit their loved ones graves because they're buried either at sea or in Europe or in the Pacific. It was really humbling to, to remind myself that as we were on the USS Hornet and uh, it, it made, it made the abilities that we have now to return our, our fallen back to Arlington or whatever other national cemetery that much more special because there are many of those that were, won't ever be re- returned. And, today's a day to remember all of them the memorial day holiday is more than just burgers and brats and barbecues with your friends and camping trips the memorial day holiday is about honestly truly appreciating those that have sacrificed to give you the opportunity for all those things today's episode of the malbehave racing experience and one of the reasons why i decided to race um, against ptsd is to overcome the feelings of loss to overcome the grief to overcome all of it and celebrate my friends that I've lost to celebrate those that have given everything and to try and find a way to expose how both through combat losses and through self-harm and and suicide PTSD is truly a disease that is affecting almost everybody less than one percent of the modern day public in the United States serves in the military 
But so many of us are affected by those that come back with PTSD, traumatic brain injury, and everything else. So take today to remember those that have fallen. Remember those that have come back with parts of them missing, parts of them dead, because that really is what PTSD does and traumatic brain injury does, is it it harms us. It, it kills portions of us, and it makes it really hard for us to, to get along. But finally, the fifth episode, the Memorial Day episode of the Malbehave Racing Experience is brought to you by Major Brent Taylor from the Utah National Guard and from Major Walter David Gray, United States Air Force. Thank you, gentlemen, for your sacrifice, and Godspeed to you, to Valhalla, and I wish all the best to your families as they make the difficult journey through life without you.